Acts chapter 6. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. The message this morning is entitled, The Blessing and Burden of Growth. And the last couple of weeks, we've talked about, like, our church. We talk about pastoral ministry. We talked about a lot of different things. Uh, We we are experiencing some some great things in our church. I'm very thankful for for all that God's doing. Uh, We have a a ton of new people. We have a ton of disciples being made. Uh, We're taking more and more mission trips. Uh, We have a ton of children in the back. Like, like our Sunday morning average right now is 100 every week. Of course, it's down a little bit today uh, with Labor Day. But but a third of our attendance every Sunday is our children's ministry. Uh, Literally, one-third of our our church body is our children. I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, we have some great things happening in our church. The truth is, if we looked at everyone who comes regularly or semi-regularly, we have 150 people that are part of our church. And that's a blessing. Because I remember 10 years ago when we had eight people on a Sunday morning. That was a crowd. And we had eight people in this room. Now listen, I know this room's not full on Sunday morning, but can you imagine eight people in this room? It's like a BB in a box car. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it's like... And, and for a guy that's having to teach, it's painful. It's like, you got to be kidding me. This is the most difficult thing in the world. Well, in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that, that with growth, there's certainly a blessing, but sometimes there's challenges with church growth. And we're going to look in Acts chapter 6. Many of you know this passage. Let's look at verses 1 to 7. Uh, this is the, 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 the record of the early church, the exponential growth that they were experiencing, but then some of the challenges that they faced and some of the needs that they had as a church body. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And so, and so the early church was ministering to widows, giving them bread, giving them provision, and and. As the number of the disciples multiplied and the church was growing, well, there, there was some challenges. There were some problems, okay? Verse 2 says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look, out, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer, and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so this morning, let's talk about the burden and the blessing of growth, because we experience both. And God has something unique for us in this passage, and I think our church is, is really kind of right where uh, this text has us. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get in the Word together. Father, thank you again for the morning. God, thank you for the songs, especially uh, just the topic of those songs, that, that Father, we are saved in, in the person of Jesus Christ. We are saved when we, when we put our faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross of Calvary. God, that ought to make us thankful, God, that the power of your cross and the power of your salvation is able to wash away all our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin. God, when we realize how sinful we were and it drew us to a perfect Savior, God, we should be excited and rejoice daily, continually, of the forgiveness that you gave us and the new life that you gave us in Jesus Christ. 
And Father, this morning as we talk about church growth and we talk about challenges, God, help us to understand. God, we, we are thankful for what you're doing in our church. And as, as such, it presents certain challenges that need to be addressed. And so, Lord, uh, help us to grow together in unity as a body of believers. We'll give you the glory for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with point number one in your notes. If you want to take notes, follow along. We're going to talk about the blessing of multiplication. The blessing of multiplication. Verse one says that in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, and, and, and I want you to see that the book of Acts for us records the early church as the, as the church is experiencing significant growth. And the next slide has several verses on it. I didn't put it in your notes, but, but look at Acts chapter one and verse 15. The Bible says that Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and as he begins preaching and talking, he says, uh, the Bible tells us that there were about 120 of, disciple, of those disciples in Acts chapter 1. And then if you skip over to Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches a tremendous, powerful message after the day of Pentecost. It says, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Now, you talk about exponential growth fast. A church went from 120 to 3,000. That's amazing. And then in Acts chapter 4, it says in verse 4 that, Howbeit many of them which heard the word, so as they continued to preach God's word, the number of the men uh, was about how many? 5,000. This is exponential growth. And then in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, The believers were added, uh, were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. And, and so the early church, man, they, they went from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 to multitudes. And, and obviously we're not there, but we, we have seen growth in our church. And, and I'm thankful because it shows us, here's the key in your notes, Jesus alone is the one that builds his church. Jesus does that. Jesus builds his church. He promised in Matthew 16 and verse 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so as a, as a local church, we need to expect God to grow our church. And the way God grows our church is when we do the work of the ministry, when we share the gospel, when we are intentional about making disciples, that's how God grows the church. And so we need to expect church growth, yet we need to continue to be dependent on Christ himself because, because Jay can't grow the church. And Cody can't grow the church, and David can't grow the church. Only Christ can build his church. And so if I'm building it, it's not the church. And if Cody's building it, it's not the church. Only Christ can build the church, and, and, and he does that as we together do the work of the ministry. And, and so in your notes, I put this in here. Look, the church, the local church grows in two different ways. Number one, it grows numerically through addition. It, and as we saw in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, those four instances, God gave us a numerical value, 120, 3,000, 5,000, multitudes, okay? And so the church does grow through addition, and that is accomplished through evangelism. As we go and win people to Christ and share the gospel, how many people got saved last week, last month? Okay, those are real numbers. Does that make sense? And sometimes when we go out and witness and share the gospel, we connect with other Christians that are already saved, but they need a place to grow. And we're thankful for that. We want, we want this place to be a place that every Christian can grow. And so those that believe the gospel are added to the church 
But then secondly, the church grows in maturity. In other words, there is spiritual growth that God expects for every one of us, and, and we're not growing necessarily in number, but we should grow in Christ-likeness. And, and that's called discipleship, right? How many of you know what discipleship is in this church? Man, you've heard that like every Sunday. Okay. Man, but discipleship is growing in Christ-likeness, and, and that's something that you can't necessarily measure in number. Does that make sense? Like on a scale of 1 to 10, how close are you to, to Christ? Well, we don't measure it like that, right? It, it's, it's not quantity, it's quality. Does that make sense? It's qualitative growth. It's, it's Christ-likeness. And as, as, as we all grow from the moment of salvation forward, that God's goal is that we become more like Christ. And, and however long that takes and however long we're alive on this planet, our continual goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so, and so, and so God's design for the church is number one, that we reach people with the gospel and they become believers in Christ. And then number two, once they're believers in Christ, they should grow to become Christ-like. Does that make sense? We, we're all, this is all old hat for, for many of us. Okay, so here's the question. This is not the invitation, but let me ask this question. Am I a believer in Christ or am I a disciple of Christ? In other words, number one, am I saved? Have I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for my sin personally? I didn't ask if you did a religious work. I didn't ask if you were baptized. I didn't ask if your daddy was the preacher or your grandpa was the preacher or if your daddy built the building the church meets in. I didn't ask any of those things. The question is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ for salvation personally? And I hope the answer to that is yes. Then the second question is, are you a disciple of Christ? In other words, if you're saved, are you growing into the image and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that, that hopefully is also a yes. Does that make sense? I hope both of those answers are yes. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm becoming a disciple of Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us that we're all called to come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. God wants you to be perfect. And perfect doesn't mean sinless. Perfect means mature, complete, whole. And the measure of your maturity is not Jay, and it's not any other religious leader, it's Christ. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of who? Of Christ. And so, and so, and prayerfully, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing, we're seeing people reach for the gospel. We're seeing disciples made. The word of God does the work. As we respond in faith to the gospel, we become born again into God's family. As we continue to respond in faith to God's word, we grow in maturity. It's the word of God that does the work. And only Jesus can do it. Romans 10, verse 17, it's not on the screen, but listen. The Bible says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. There are people that are hearing God's word, and they're believing it, and then they're continuing to hear God's word because those 12 apostles are, are like really the 12 pastors of the church at Jerusalem. And they're continuing to hear God's word and they're going from believer to disciples of Christ. You guys see that? That's a blessing. Man, that's a blessing. And our church is full of people that have moved from being a believer in Christ to a disciple of Christ. That is a blessing. It's a blessing of growth. Here's the problem. Point number two. We see the burden of murmuring. 
the burden of murmuring. Okay, so look at, look at verse 1 again, because verse 1, the second half of that verse, when it talks about the blessing of growth and ministry in a church, it says in verse 2 that there was also a murmuring, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And, and we could spend a lot of time and talk about historically what's happening. But here's what you need to know. There were Jewish widows and Gentile widows. And somebody wasn't getting their biscuit and gravy every morning. I mean, somebody came to church and the donuts were already gone. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and it's like the Grecian widows were murmuring against the Jewish widows because they got served first, they got served the most, and, and the donuts ran out. And you know how it is, man. If you, if you get here at like 11.05, I mean, I'll be honest with you, the, the donut selection is, is really slim, you know. If there's no other reason to get to church early, you ought to come for the donuts and the coffee. I'm just telling you, man, that's super carnal. But it's a really good reason. Do you know why I get here early? Well, number one, I'm not a morning person. But number two, when Dave walks in with the donuts, I got first crack at it. I mean, listen, I don't even have to fight Cody for it. I mean, Dave walks in, and I'm like, I could get like three donuts if I wanted. Nobody would ever know. Nobody would ever know. And you get here late, man, you miss out. And, and it created problems in the early church, okay? So practically, it created this growth, the blessing of growth, the blessing of ministry created some challenges and the challenges manifested in murmuring. Now listen, very practically speaking, God's word has a lot to say about ministry to widows, okay? God is a champion for widows. God is a champion for the fatherless. Hebrew, or excuse me, Psalm 68 and verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. So God has a heart for the widow, both Old Testament and New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to 1 Timothy 5 and James chapter 1, God gives a whole lengthy explanation of how the church is to minister to widows, those that have suffered affliction, they've lost their husband. And so here's the point. What was happening in Acts chapter 6 was a legitimate need. But that legitimate need did not give liberty or license to murmur and create division and discord in a church. And again, we want to look at that practically because we want to learn application for our church and for our life. There will be times where you may have a legitimate complaint, man. And again, these widows being ministered to, that's a scriptural principle. But a legitimate complaint doesn't give you liberty to murmur. Not that we have people that are murmuring. We're learning this morning. And so we need to learn about murmuring because murmuring is always against someone. That's a key principle in your notes. When we murmur, we always murmur against someone. And, and a short study of this in the Bible will take us back to Exodus chapter 15. The very first mention of murmuring is when the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt. God had delivered them through the blood of the Lamb. He had brought them through the Red Sea, a great picture of baptism. And now they're in the wilderness, and they have to learn to depend on God for their provision. Well, look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 24. The Bible says the people murmured against who? Moses, saying, what shall we what? Man, you done drug us out here in the wilderness, and we're thirsty, and we got nothing to drink. Now, now Moses is not the one that drug them to the wilderness. Who took them to the wilderness? God took them to the wilderness. Who's the leader whom, whom God is using to lead them? Moses. Who do they blame? They blame Moses. 
And, and again, if you go to Exodus 16, just a chapter over, verses 2 to 3, it says the whole congregation of, of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. So now they've got all the leaders involved. You know, to start with, it was just Moses, but now it's like, it's like Jay and Cody, man, what, what y'all's problem? And the children of Israel said unto them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And we sat by flesh pots and we did eat bread to the full and we had all the donuts to ourselves. You brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So they're thirsty and they're hungry. They have a legitimate complaint, but the way it manifests is they start murmuring. And they murmur against the leaders. But really, their complaint is not against the leaders. It's, it's, it's against God. You see it in Exodus 16 and verse 8. So Moses said, It shall be when the Lord shall give you evening uh, flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, that the Lord heareth, the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? I mean, Moses is just saying, look, me and Aaron, we're not anybody. We're just doing what God called us to do. What are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And so here's a key principle. Look, murmuring against God's ordained leadership is equated to murmuring against God himself. In both Old and New Testament examples, those that murmured did so because of a lack of physical sustenance, right? You see it in the Old Testament. God brought them out of Egypt. They're hungry and they're thirsty in the wilderness. In Acts chapter 6, the church is growing, but there's a legitimate need for widows who have suffered affliction, who have experienced difficulty, who have no one to provide for them. And the church is, is, is stepping in to help with that. But in both instances, it's physical sustenance. And in reality, in both instances, both groups of people reveal a lack of trust in God's provision in their life. Do you think God knew the nation of Israel needed something to eat and drink? And do you think God knew in Acts chapter 6 that as the church grew, there were going to be physical needs that needed to be addressed? God knew that. And so in both instances, the murmuring was, was, was wrong. It was sinful. And so un, let me just say this. I wrote it down. I want to read it the way I wrote it so I don't screw it up. Unmet expectations will cripple a church body. Unmet expectations will cripple a church body. Okay, so listen. The sobering reality of suffering and the difficulty of spiritual maturity many times leads us to express our discontent with other people, sometimes even those in leadership. In other words, the call to follow Christ is sometimes suffering. And the call to grow and mature spiritually is challenging. That's why most Christians don't do it. And many times what we do when we face ourselves with, with those realities is that we have unmet expectations that ultimately cause us to express our discontent with other people in the church and ultimately against those in leadership. But the truth is, those are unbiblical expectations. It's not the leader's fault and it's not the leader's role or task to meet those needs. It's God's, it's God's responsibility. And so the children of Israel expected Moses and Aaron to meet their physical needs. Only God could do that. The widows of the early church expected the apostles to meet their needs. Only God could do that. And let me just ask you a question. Have you ever experienced something or, or have you ever experienced unmet expectation from a church 
or from a pastor or someone in leadership, and when you didn't get what your perceived expectation was, it left you murmuring about the situation. And then did you stop to ask yourself the question, is what I'm mad about even a biblical expectation that I should have? I know those people aren't here this morning, right? They're only live streaming. They're not in the room, thankfully, because their expectation just got not met, right? <laughs> you know, what's revealed for us in the early church is the realization that with the blessing of growth comes the reality of attack. There's challenges. And so here's the key in your notes. Look, unity in a growing church will always be attacked. Unity in a growing church will always be attacked. I'm, I'm almost... Man, I've been at it a minute. By the way, thank you again for last Sunday. Uh, that was a tremendous blessing to me, to my family. Uh, ten years has flown by. Uh, the words, the gifts were all uh, just absolutely uh, overwhelming. Thank you. Uh, here's what I've known in ten years, and here's what I knew in 14 years before coming to this place. Uh, I know that when everything is going well in a ministry or in a church, you better buckle up. Because unity is always going to be under attack in, in a local church. We see it in Acts all the way through. Acts chapter 1 tells us that, that the church at Jerusalem was in one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says that the day of Pentecost, that the church at Jerusalem was in one accord. Acts 2 and verse 46, it says they continued daily in one accord in the temple. And in Acts chapter 5, it says they continued daily in one accord in Solomon's porch. The early church was unified. But because of their unity, they experienced attack Acts chapter 3 and 4, those attacks came from outside the church. There were religious leaders, Pharisees, that, that, that did not want the apostles in the church preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, there were attacks that came within the church. In other words, money issues became a problem in Acts chapter 5. And then in Acts chapter 6, within the church, there were murmuring problems. And so any church that experiences growth is going to experience attacks. It's going to experience opposition and those attacks will divide the membership, and it will discourage leadership. It'll discourage leadership. It discourages leadership. And some of us do a really good job as leaders to have our game face on all the time. But man, there's some discouraging things that just happen in ministry. It's just discouraging. And this is an example, and again, we don't, we don't have a problem with this, but, but, but this is an example if we don't learn that as we grow, the potential for some of these challenges exists. Man, if we, don't, if we are ignorant of that, well, the next thing you know, we're going to be right in the middle of a big attack and not know how to, how to navigate it and how to handle it. You know, God showed us in the Old Testament and the New Testament that both groups of people murmured against God ultimately. God, God has told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 10, I don't, I don't know if it, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but let me just read 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. It says, neither murmur, neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Paul is recounting the Old Testament Israel for the New Testament church. And he says, hey, you remember how they murmured and it didn't work out so good? Don't murmur. Don't murmur. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15, it says, do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The point is, if you've ever had unmet expectations in a church like I have, 
Well, you've probably murmured. Maturity would ask the question, is this even a biblical expectation? And, and I know in my life, because before I became a pastor, I had a pastor, and I know in my life when I found myself murmuring 9.9 times out of 10, the expectation that was being unmet wasn't even biblical. What I expected of my pastor and my church wasn't even the biblical expectation that God has for my leadership. Does that make sense? You guys okay with that? And so, and so there is a burden that comes with burp, uh, murmuring that, that can discourage and divide the church body. So let's, let's see the solution, point number three. Let's see the behavior of the multitude. How does God reconcile this situation? Look at verse two. So word gets out, man. There's not enough donuts to go around. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out among yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so again, as the, as the ministry is accomplished, as disciples are multiplied, the need for leadership is going to increase. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is an involvement of the body. And so to settle this discrepancy and this discord, the 12 apostles call together the multitude of the disciples and present the situation. By the way, they didn't call together the multitude of the church attenders. They called together the multitude of the disciples. That's who were called. Not just the believers in Christ, but those that are growing in maturity. It's very clear what God tells us in this passage. They called to, together the disciples, the, the 12 apostles called this meeting, and again, I think they're the first 12 pastors of this church at Jerusalem. It's also interesting that God gave that church 12 pastors way before they had the multitudes of people. That's a very interesting study, by the way. The church is ruled and directed by spirit-anointed leaders, and so Christ had anointed these apostles. They had selected the 12th after Judas fell in Acts chapter 1. And then these pa pastors gave instruction to the multitude of disciples to look amongst themselves for qualified men to be appointed over this business. And so literally what we're seeing is the, they don't, they're not called deacons in Acts chapter 6, but what we're seeing is the, the, the precursor to the office of the deacon. Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom, that are able to be appointed over this, 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 this issue, this business. And let me just say this, practically speaking, a healthy body, a healthy church body is able to raise and develop leaders from within. In other words, the church at Jerusalem didn't look anywhere else for leadership, for deacons, for, for help. They look within their church body. And so leaders for the church body come from within the church body if we have a healthy body. Now, sometimes a church body needs a transfusion. Okay? Sometimes they need that to get healthy. But the biblical model is that, that a local church ought to be able to raise up and reproduce healthy leaders from within its own body. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 says that the church is fitly joined together. It has something that every joint supplies. There's a measure of every part. And the church body makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What that means is a healthy church body 
Well, it's going to have the people that we need within it. And so if you're here today and you're part of this church body, I'm thankful because what that means is God has given us the people that we need to do the ministry that God's called us to do. We don't have to go outsourcing it to other people or organizations. God has brought the next people within our church to be the next deacons and the next pastors within this body of believers. That's the way God designed it. Jesus builds his church. You remember that? And we need to be thankful for that. We're going to talk more about that process next week. So, so we see in that passage, we see that there's an involvement of the church body in the selection of these men to address this physical problem. Secondly, we see the interdependence of the body. And I know that's a big word, and I hope you had coffee because you're going to need it to get all those letters. Scrabble this morning for your blanks. But we see the interdependence of the body. In other words, we see the apostles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit needing to separate the work of the ministry from the daily administration of the church. And you got you to pay attention here because they say in verse 2, it's not reason that we leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, you could say it like this. It's unreasonable. Okay? Anything that takes spiritual leaders away from the spiritual leadership and ministry of the church is unreasonable. And so the problem is, in, in a lot of churches, listen, church will tend to pull the spiritual leaders of the church away from the most important things in the church, prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And, and, and those apostles said, it's not reason. We've got to stay in our lane, so we, we need some men that can stay in this lane and address these challenges. Does that make sense? And again, we're going to get back to that unmet expectations in just a second, and I'm going to need you to have grace with me because, because we're going to talk about pastors and deacons, and they're different, and the body needs both. The body needs both, and the body is able to edify itself with both, but they are different. And so there's an inter interdependence of the body. And then lastly, there's the individuality of the offices, okay? And again, the term deacon is not used in Acts chapter 6, but we see a precursor to what's happening in Acts chapter 6. It's later established as, a, as an office in the church as, as the scriptures are revealed. And so get this ministry principle down. Elders rule the church. Deacons serve the church. Deacons serve the church. Deacons address the business that assists the pastor. Deacons alleviate the physical load of the pastoral office so that the pastors can continue to devote themselves to the spiritual burden of the ministry, prayer, and the ministry of the Word of God. In, in other words, a deacon's ministry is literally to wait tables. So how many of you went to a restaurant this week? You might go to a restaurant this week? What'd you eat? I know what we ate. Yeah, me and Gabe like hammered some Chinese this week. It was fantastic. What'd you eat? Where'd you go? Restaurant. Anybody eat a good place? Where? Was it good? What'd you eat? Bacon chicken sandwich. That sounds pretty good. Anybody else go to a restaurant? It was a sit-in sit -in restaurant, right? Okay. Anybody else eat out this week? That's not, I'm not going to check and see if you tithed and, you know, if you didn't tithe, but you ate. I mean, that's not what's going on. What'd you eat? Super Chicks. You went to a place called Super Chicks? Okay. Was it good? Oh, there, there. Oh, man, I hope the recording caught that. Okay, yeah, moving on. <laughs> okay, so if you've been to a restaurant, listen, you know there's a couple of moving pieces when you go to a restaurant. You sit down, and the server comes to your table, right? 
and they introduce themselves, and they say, hey, what would you like to drink? And they bring you something to drink, and they make sure you have uh, silverware, and uh, unless you go to, like, Kenya, and they still eat with their hands, which makes no sense, but anyways. So you sit down, and, and they give you silverware, and they bring you the bread and all these different things, and then you place your order, and the person that you never meet is the chef in the kitchen. And he takes the order, he prepares the order, he cooks the order, he makes it perfect, and then the server brings you the order. The point is, you got to have both. And in the local church, you got to have both. You got to have servers, but you got to have the cook in the kitchen. You got to have somebody that's cooking up the meal that we get on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, but you also need a server that can help be the hands and the feet that can address the, 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 the physical needs of the body. And let me just tell you, they're two different people. There's a reason the server is not the cook, and there's a reason the cook is not the server. Because they both have a lane to stay in. And when they work together, you have a great experience at a restaurant. You walk out of there saying, man, that was fantastic. There's nothing worse than having really good service and a horrible meal. Than maybe having a, a really good meal with horrible service. Man, you need both. And in the church body, we have to have both. And so here's a key principle. Listen, pastors are tasked to labor in the spiritual needs of the church. What's the most important responsibility of any pastor? This is where I need you to go ahead and turn the grace on. You ready? Well, let me tell you what the most important responsibility of a pastor is by telling you what it's not. You see, it's not to meet your perceived wants or needs. That's not the pastor's job. It's not to fix your problems. It's not to fix your finances. It's not to fix your marriage. It's not to fix your health. He's not, he's not tasked with giving you advice concerning a vaccination. He's, he's not tasked to point you to a political preference. He's not tasked with telling you what job to take or what car to buy. He's not tasked with making sure that your family is saved. That's a good one for an amen. And it doesn't matter if you amen it, it's right. He's not tasked with raising your kids. He's not tasked with fixing your wife. He's not tasked with fixing your husband. He's not tasked to ensure your comfort or convenience. And last of all, but certainly not least, he is not tasked to field all of your complaints. And yet, most pastors of most churches will get most of the blame most of the time for most of those things. And by the way, if you think any of those things are biblical qualifications or expectation, you would be in error. So let me tell you what a pastor's tasked to do. He's tasked to lead the church in prayer and to feed the church the Word of God. Verse 4 says that we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the Word of God. And so as a church, we need to understand, number one, we need prayer. We need prayer. And prayer is connecting with God. Prayer is not something we just do before the worship set, after the worship set, before the sermon, at the end of the sermon. Prayer is actually connecting and spending time with God. It's not gaining knowledge. It's knowing God more. And listen, you as an individual are your own priest. You don't need a pastor or a priest to go to God on your behalf. 
There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if you know Christ, you're in Christ. And you can access God completely. But as a pastor, the biblical responsibility for a pastor, number one, is to pray. Let me just show you the Apostle Paul. Let me show you his ministry as it, as it reveals itself through the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you, keyword, always in my prayers. So Paul prayed for the believers at Rome how often? Always. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Ephesian believers were given thanks to, Paul, to God by Paul, and he made mention of them always in his prayers. Philippians 1, verses 3 to 4. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy, always. Colossians 1, and verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, and verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee, Timothy, in my prayers night and day. Well, a pastor only works for like an hour and a half on Sunday. Okay. Philemon in verse 4, I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. So anything that takes away the spiritual leader's focus on prayer for the church family needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed. And the early church had that. They said, listen, it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable that we serve tables. It's, un it's not reason. We need to spend time in prayer Prayer to God for ourselves, prayer to God for the message, prayer to God for the word of God, prayer to God for the church family, prayer to God for disciples to be made, prayer to God for open doors of utterance, prayers for spiritual protection. And listen, you can do all of those things, but a pastor is called to do that. He's called to labor in prayer. And if you don't think prayer is labor, come hang out for a minute. You see, you see, our expectation sometimes is not biblical of our pastors. I'm just talking in general. I'm not talking about me. I'm just saying it's in general. In our mind, many times we think this is what a pastor ought to be doing. You ought to be helping me with my marriage crisis. You ought to be helping me with my finances. You ought to be helping me make these decisions i got to make. You ought to be helping. Listen, we ought to be praying for you, number one. In order for them to pray for you, guess what? You've got to let them know what you need prayer for. You, you got to let him know. He can't pray for you if he didn't know what to pray for. If you know your pastor, or you have a relationship with him, then you can task him to pray for you. You can task him to pray for you. I dare say some of us are missing an opportunity because we don't maybe have the relationship that we need to have, and therefore we don't have the prayer we need to have. The second thing that we need is we have a need for God's word. You say, Jay, I thought we were talking about deacons. Well, we are. But we can't talk about deacons without talking about pastors. And let me just remind us that the pastor's primary function is to lead in prayer and to feed the church the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes and he says, The elders, in other words, the pastors, the bishops, which are among you, I exhort. 
who am also an elder. So, so Peter himself says, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. He's writing to elders. He says, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not by filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. A pastor's job is to feed you the word of God. That's what it is. That's what it is. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, it says, Take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So what that means is the pulpit ministry of the pastor of the local church is primarily to feed the flock of God, the word of God. And if you didn't know that, now you know it. The reason that we assemble and the reason that we open the Word of God and the reason that you got about a million cross-references in those notes is so that you can have the Word of God, so that you can access the Word of God, so that you have a teacher and a pastor that can teach you the Word of God. So what that means is the expectation for the church body is to show up expecting to be fed. Now let me ask you a question, man. Do you come to church spiritually hungry? Do you come to church wanting to know God's word? Do you come just want the donuts? Okay, well, if you're getting here late, you're not getting them. We upgraded the coffee a little bit. I don't know if you noticed. We upgraded last week and this week. Some of you noticed. You know what I'm talking about, man. It's my people, man. You pay attention to the details, okay? But the coffee and the donuts physically ain't going to really do anything for us spiritually and eternally. But these words will transform our life. These words will benefit us and make us perfect and mature in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need pastors who labor in the word and doctrine. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Oh, you can just download a sermon. Oh, bro. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you could. That's not laboring in the word and doctrine. That's somebody else's labor in the word and doctrine. And pastors are called to study, man, and, and preach. And, and again, you are an individual priest. You can get in that book. You can learn to study that book. The Spirit of God can teach you. Absolutely. But God gifts his body with pastors and teachers so that the saints can be perfected, so that we can have doctrine from the word of God and application to our life. And so this morning, the application is, hey, I don't know really what you understand about pastors and, and deacons, but God's teaching us. The application is that we need both in our church body. We need both. There's challenges. There's things that, 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 that we need to overcome, and we have to have everybody staying in their lane. So you need a pastor. And let me just say, man, if you're newer to our church and you don't have a pastor, you need a pastor. And if you don't land here, you need to land somewhere because you need a pastor to perfect you in the person of Jesus Christ. But you also, you need deacons. Pastors need deacons. Because at any point that, that, that the spiritual leadership of the church is consumed with physical ministry, and those are legitimate needs, then it creates discord in the body. Okay, point number four. You guys still here? All right, look at, look at number four. The benefit of multiplied leadership, and we'll close with this. So when we do it God's way, God blesses. God, God, God puts his hand of blessing back on the church. Look at verse 5. So the saying pleased the whole multitude, and the saying was, hey, we need to appoint some men 
to deal with this business so that we can do our business as pastors and leaders. The saying pleased the whole multitude. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and, and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom when they set before the apostles, when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And we don't have time to go through all the names. Each of those names means something. Most of those names are Gentile names. And so those Gentile men are, are going to be ministering to both Jew and Gentile widows, which is awesome because Christ breaks down racial barriers and cultural barriers and gender barriers. Did you not know that? That Christ does that? So if you still got racial barriers or cultural barriers or gender barriers in your heart, you probably not experienced the gospel. Because Christ breaks all those down. He breaks them all down. There's no place for that inside the church. And, and so these men are recognized and they're set apart for this service of this new office in the church. And they receive the laying on of hands, which is a, a picture of transference of authority. Not to become leaders in the church or elders, elder rule in the church, but were commissioned under the authority of the pastors of that church to accomplish the business that needed attention. Here's the result. Number one, the Word of God increased. The Word of God increased. That's how this thing started. The Word of God increased. The number of disciples was multiplied. The church grew, and then there were problems. But when they addressed the problems and the need of the body, well, then they're right back to where the Word of God increased. Number two, the number of the disciples multiplied. That's where we started. That was verse 1. We want to be in a continual state where we're expecting God to continue to grow His church. And so when the Word of God increases, it does the work of the ministry, and they multiplied greatly. My pastor back home at Decatur Baptist, my pastor for many, many years, Brother Doug Ripley, used to say, and I think it's a true statement, a church is small for a season or for a reason. You remember that. Corey remembers that. We heard that for years at our church. A church is small for a season or for a reason. In other words, if we do the work of the ministry, we're going to grow by addition because we reach people with the gospel, but we're going to grow in maturity as we disciple people. And as we grow in maturity, we have more disciples teaching the Word of God and evangelizing, which ultimately will result in an increase of the body. And let me just say something, not to offend anybody, but there are a lot of people that would say, I like a small church where everybody knows my name. Making your way in the world. Okay, no, I'm not. I've got it in here, but I'm not going to sing it because I can't hold a key to save my life. Uh, let, me, let me ask you a question if you have that mindset. Don't answer out loud. But if you have the mindset, I like a small church, can you give me the list of the people that you don't want to get saved? Who in, who in your family just needs to go to hell so that you can experience a small church? Which one of your neighbors needs to go to hell so that you can experience a small church and be comfortable with what you expect? Is that a biblical expectation? I don't think it's a biblical expectation. Church is small for a season or a reason. The last point, the last benefit, is that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And what we see now is not only Gentiles being saved, but we see the, the religious leaders of the Judaism religion coming to faith in Christ. And here's the point. When the Spirit of God leads the leaders of the church 
to more effectively organize the body of Christ with spirit-filled men to serve in the capacity of a deacon, there's an immediate and a positive response. You say, Jay, why are we talking about this? Because we are at the point over the next few weeks as we discuss this, uh, we're at the point where the body needs to recommend some men to be deacons. We, we are 150 people, even though it doesn't feel like it in this room, there's 150 names of people that need ministering to. And, and some of those are spiritual needs, of course. We, pastors need to pray, and pastors need to provide the feeding of God's word from the pulpit. But there's other challenges and things that come to attention. And, and truth be known, many of, many of the times those come across my desk, and I'm thankful for that. But we're at the point now where we have to put men in a position to serve in the capacity to help meet those needs. Does that make sense? You guys okay? So next week, we're going to take kind of a, another view of this deacon, and we're going to talk about who it is that God chooses to use. Because that the body of Christ itself needs to make those recommendations. And so we need to understand who it is exactly from within our body needs to be serving in that office. Does that make sense? And so, uh, and so I hope you'll come back next week. All right. As we close, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, are you a believer in Christ? And then number two, are you a disciple of Christ? Are you, are you growing spiritually? Are you actually engaged in what God would have you engaged in? Or did your salvation really mark the last time that you ever accomplished anything spiritually in your life? The second point of consideration is, do you have unmet expectations of your pastor? Have you murmured against leadership? Because of, man, here's what should have happened that didn't happen. And was, was blame cast unbiblically? And if so, would you, would you repent and ask God to forgive you? Thirdly, would you be qualified to be a deacon? In other words, as we get into it next week, but, but we've already seen these men are full of the Holy Ghost. They're full of wisdom. They're willing to serve the body in whatever capacity is needed. Would you be willing to do that? And I hope the answer to that is yes. Let's pray.